Acts chapter 13 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, this, this particular section in, in Acts, the 13th chapter, kind of marks a turning point in, in the narrative of this book. Uh, from here forward, Luke is going to start to shift his focus away from the church in Jerusalem, and it's going to begin to focus on the church's spread outward. The church had been spreading out already, but, but it was mostly due to persecution. And what we're going to start to see now is an intentional missional effort to go out and reach uh, new places. So Paul and Barnabas are about to be sent out on the church's first missionary journey uh, to, to one of those kind of the dark spots on the map that are out there, which really is the heart of God and the mission of the church, you know, to explore strange new worlds. You know where I'm going. It's true, though, to seek out new life and new civilizations. It's it's right there, guys, to boldly go where, you know, this is what I know. I'm not a Trekkie at all, but it's like that really is kind of like what they're getting ready to do. And interestingly, kind of what we're getting ready to do as well. You know, that kind of thing, though, is risky. It's dangerous. It's uncertain. It can be costly. It's a lot easier just to stay home where it's cozy. And that's kind of who I am. I like to just stay with what's comfortable and normal and predictable, right? But those weren't the marching orders that Jesus gave to us. He told us to go and to make disciples of all peoples and to teach them his commandments and to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that's what they're going to go do now. They're going to obey this command to go. And no doubt this would have been hard for Paul and Barnabas. The church in Antioch is thriving at this point. It's a great place to be. And it would have been hard for the church as well to see them leave. And, and, and you know, the truth is we're about ready to send 20 of our people-ish down to Lapine to, to join up with the group there. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to see them go. It's going to be hard for them to leave. And yet, it's all for the sake of the gospel and for kingdom growth. And so it, we couldn't really be more excited about this. Now, one of the questions we've had come up, just, you know, it's come, come to our ears, is the question of um, why go to Lapine when there are already 20-plus churches down there? And I just figured I'd take a second to, to address it because uh, it sounds like, you know, isn't that, isn't, you know, 25 churches enough already? And that's a fair question. But interestingly, we met with a group of the Lapine pastors for lunch last week, and they, they couldn't have been more excited about us coming down. One of the pastors said there's only about 10% of the population that actually attends churches there. And of the churches that are down there, and, and I don't mean this to be you know, overly critical, but you have to ask the question, how many of them are actually preaching the gospel? Um, and I don't know the answer to that, but, but you know, generally speaking, you know, not a lot of churches anymore really do preach the gospel. And so they were, they were actually very welcoming to us and excited about the possibility of us coming down, really just to be able to introduce more of the community to Jesus. And that's, that's the heart of what we're doing. And, and we're, uh, you know, extremely excited about it. So it is going to be a sacrifice, but it is a great, there's a need there and it really is out of obedience to the Great Commission. So we're going to pick things up in chapter 13 and verse one, where uh, they're in Antioch at this point. And it says, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Mannion, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. 
Now, verse 1 tells us about this, this rather you know, motley crew of, of five prophets and teachers within the church at Antioch who were worshiping God together and fasting. And I love that we see right from the start here of the, of the church, we see this, this racial diversity and cultural diversity. Uh, the, the, the people listed here, Barnabas was a local boy. He was from Cyprus. You've got uh, Simeon, who was a black man. Uh, Lucius was from North Africa. Paul's from Tarsus. Mannion grew up with Herod, who's, you know, I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but yeah, hopefully he learned a lot of things not to do from Herod. But you've got this really unique group of people here. And the truth is that a church should reflect the community that it's planted in. The people that, that come to the church, it should kind of look like the community. You should see a little bit of everybody represented. And we actually have that here. We don't have a lot of you know racial diversity in, in the area we live in, but we do have a lot of cultural diversity. We have a lot of different people from a lot of different, you know, places and and, and uh you know it, it's neat to see that represented here. We also see in the church a variety of gifts being used by a variety of people, which is another sign of a really healthy church. Our desire is to see every one of you practicing or participating, I should say, in the ministry of church. Uh, the body functions better when, when every part is healthy and doing what they're, what they're called to do. Now, sometimes people will say that they don't know what their, their gifts are, and, and I understand that that's a, you know, a real thing. And, and sometimes when you don't know what your gifts are, you just kind of sit on the bench and you wait. You, know, you want to get into the game, but you're not sure what to do, so you just kind of sit there and, and wait for somebody to you know, call you. But you have permission to, to engage right now, because there's lots of things that the church is called to do. Each of us is called to pray. Each of us is called to serve. Each of us is called to encourage. Each of us is to call to testify about what God has done in our lives. Every, every one of us can be doing that all the time. And, and there's plenty of work to do as far as that goes. So you have permission to, you know, join the game. It's okay for you to, to jump in. And I found that if you're being faithful in little things, that God will entrust you with bigger things very often. And, and as you're simply living life among other Christians, your gifts have a way of kind of bubbling to the surface. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but people will start to see the stuff in you that maybe you don't see or weren't aware of and be like, oh, you know what, you know, you're, you got the gift of hospitality. And all of a sudden you start to realize these things. And, and you'll also begin to have more opportunities to use them. So if you're not currently actively participating with other Christians in church, Community groups have all started up. Again, there's all kinds of different ways to do that. But that's the best way I know as far as how to get into the game. So there's two two gifts mentioned in verse 1, yeah, prophets and teachers. And notice that both of them are plural. This, this means that the church wasn't a one-man show. In fact, this particular church could afford to send out a Paul and a Barnabas and, and be okay, not miss a beat. I mean, it's stinking Paul and Barnabas. If they leave the church, you think, well, that's a big hole. But they just they kept right on going. And I feel like that describes our church right now, too. I'm excited that we're at a place right now where we, we seem to be just kind of stacked with a lot of godly, um, gifted people. And so in a lot of ways, that means it's a good time for us to spread out, which we're getting ready to do. So in regards to these these two gifts here, I think the, the role of teachers is something that we all pretty much understand. That, that's a that's an easy one to, to get as far as a gift. God has gifted the the church with certain people who who understand His Word in a way that they can explain it to, to other people. So the truth about who God is, the truth about how how to live as a Christian, the truth about proper doctrine and beliefs, um, the truth about how to share the gospel, all these kinds of things. Teachers are able to take these things and hopefully infuse some kind of excitement and passion in other people as they as they teach and explain these things. So that's 
that's a pretty easy one to, to think of. But profits is, is that's where you, you know, you hear that one and people start to get kind of uncomfortable. It seems like, um, this one's a little bit more difficult to define in the church today. So much so that a lot of churches just ignore it altogether. Or I, I noticed even in the commentaries, you know, they would spend a lot of time talking about teachers and then it was like, well, what about, oh, you're not even going to talk about that. Okay. So, you know, there's part of me that wants to do the same thing, but then you guys would all call me a chicken and I don't know, peer pressure. Yeah. Um, in the Old Testament, the prophet was was very easily definable. The prophet was uh, a, the mouthpiece of God. He spoke the very words of God or the oracles of God. And if you've ever wondered why a prophet in the Old Testament had to be 100% accurate, this is why. Th- what they said was, thus saith the Lord. And if you're going to go around saying, thus saith the Lord, you better be right about what you're saying. And so the penalty for getting that wrong was death. We don't believe that old uh, those capital P prophets like Old Testament prophets exist anymore. And the reason for that is because now we have this that tells us, thus saith the Lord. So so this has changed that in that regard. This is the sure word of God. And, and so our Bible is, it has become that. But we do believe that small p prophets still exist in the church today, but that they would play a slightly different role. And I'll admit that there's some controversy in, 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 in this, you know, this gifting. And, and, and churches have a very difficult time defining kind of what it is. And so in the simplest terms, this is the way I would say it. A New Testament prophet declares something that has been revealed to him or to, to them, to him or her. Uh, what they speak, though, is not the Word of God. It's not authoritative. Its purpose may be to encourage or to guide, or to warn, or to comfort, or to confirm. or In some way, its purpose is to equip and to build up the body of Christ for the work of ministry. That's clear from what we see in Ephesians 4. But, I like the way Wayne Grudem puts it, who's a theologian much smarter than me. Um, he says that the very most, what, they, what you hear from, from a New Testament prophet should be treated as advice from a good friend, at the very most. Okay, That means that it might be really good advice, and it might not. And you have to test that. And that's part of the problem with an individual word. Uh, when one person comes to you and says, hey, I think you should move to Montana, for instance, I don't know if I'd go with that. That might be kind of sketchy, right? But if you start to hear it from three other people and five other people, and as you pray, God starts to open doors in Montana, and you start to get more of a corporate confirmation, then that changes things a little bit. It would appear that in the story, we, uh, the account we looked at today, that the Holy Spirit collectively spoke through all of the different people that were there to confirm what was what was happening. And it does say that, that the Holy Spirit spoke to them, but I don't. You know, most of us don't hear the voice of God. I would assume uh, if you're hearing that, you, you're uh, unique. And and again, that that even that is, you know, I've heard of people hearing from God. I don't think that's what's happening here, though. I think that they're hearing collectively from the Holy Spirit together. When it comes to hearing from God, the surest way, 100%, most accurate way, is His Word. It's the Bible. Um, I would say that the second most accurate way is a collective word, where, where you hear it from a lot of different people, the same thing coming. But the, 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 least, and the least reliable and kind of the, the sketchiest one is an individual word. That's the one that you need to be the most careful with. It doesn't mean that God doesn't speak through individuals. It just means that we have to be careful there. We also see that, that these guys fasted along with their prayers for God's direction. And fasting is, is just done as a reinforcement to prayer to determine God's will more clearly. 
So Paul and Barnabas are set apart by God for this specific work. The church lays hands on them and sends them out, which is just a way of you know saying that they are called, confirmed, and commissioned. Verse 4 says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and then, or excuse me, and they had John to assist them. Paul's habit was always to go to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. So if they went to a town that had a synagogue in it, they would go there first, preach the gospel, and then from there they would go to the Gentiles. And and uh, John that is mentioned here is John Mark. Uh, that's the cousin of Barnabas. And this may have been a situation where Kind of like what Paul would do with Titus and Timothy, he would he would grab you know a younger guy along and bring them along on a journey, hopefully to disciple them and train them. That may be what's going on here. The other thing we start to see, and it's kind of neat here, is you see uh, when this starts out, it says Barnabas and Saul. So you've got Barnabas has got you know he's the top build guy, and Saul is next, and then. You know, the next section we look at, it says Paul and his companions. <laughs> All of a sudden, Barnabas isn't even mentioned. Now it's, he's just a companion of Paul. So we start to see this movement of God where Paul, and again, the Saul-Paul thing, just so we're clear on that, Saul is most likely the name he would use when he was in Jewish circles. Paul in Roman circles, it's the same name. Um, it probably makes sense, you know, how Paul would say to the Jew, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. And to the Greek, I became like the Greek. Most likely, that's why the name changes there. Some people try to make it this, you know, God changed his name because of all the conversion and stuff. But but for quite a while, he's still being called Saul. So it's probably more like, you know, if your name is Ignatius and you're in Mexico, that works pretty good. When you come to America, you're Nacho, right? So <laughs> that's probably, that, that's a real thing. That's true. And it's also from the movie, but I like that. So I think that's what we going on. <laughs> we got going on here. I didn't mean that to be bad if it was. But we see this transition starting to happen where where all of a sudden Saul starts to become kind of, I don't want to say the headliner, because none of us are here to make a name for ourselves. We're here to make the name of Jesus famous. But you start to see this transition where, where all of a sudden Paul is becoming more prominent. So verse 6 says, When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now, the ESV translates this as a certain magician, but but you don't want to get the idea of like David Copperfield, you know, pulling rabbits out of a hat or scarves out of a sleeve. That's not what this guy is. This is a this is somebody who's part of this is a cultish. This is dark magic. This is evil. And, and, and the fact that it says a Jewish sorcerer, that's kind of like a, you know, a Christian devil worshiper. It's like, well, that's not a thing that shouldn't even be. You shouldn't even put those two words together because a Jewish person knew that they were forbidden from having anything to do with witchcraft or sorcery, or astrology, or the occult. But this guy made his living by it. So this is really odd. And he even shows the, the moniker Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus. That's just bold, you know. That's And Paul's about to set him straight. I don't mean to jump ahead, but Paul's going to correct him and say, no, actually, you are a son, <laughs> but you're a son of the devil. So that's coming. So this man had linked himself to this Roman official named Sergius Paulus as his kind of spiritual advisor. So verse 7 says, he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Illumis, the magician, um, same guy as Bar-Jesus, that's, that's the meaning of his name. It says that he opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So Sergius Paulus wasn't satisfied with what he was getting from, from this guy, Illumis. And it is pronounced that way, even though I want to say something different, but I looked it up. So I don't know. Alumus. 
Um, he didn't like what he was getting from this guy, Loomis, so he called for Paul and Barnabas to find out more about Jesus. He wanted to hear, he wanted to hear something different. But this, of course, threatened Loomis because this is his meal ticket. If he loses this job, that's bad. You know, he's, he's got a pretty good gig going here. So he wants to try to put a stop to it. And I really like this part because if you remember how Paul is wired, the way God has wired Paul is he's this zealous guy. So when he didn't know the Lord, remember what he was like? Kind of tenacious, like I'm going to go get him. Well, that hasn't changed in Paul. He's just now on our team. Right. So this is kind of cool um, here in, in verse nine. It says this. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and trickery. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. That's just fantastic. <laughs> Paul doesn't pull any punches, you know, but is fearless in his confrontation against this false prophet. And this guy's, I mean, this is like dark magic, occultic kind of guy. That would have been a little intimidating. But Paul wasn't afraid. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And Paul knew something, you know, Paul knew firsthand about how a little blindness can reorient you know, your perspective on God, right? So I think it's kind of like, oh, here, here you go. It's just the irony is so thick here that this man who didn't want the light of the gospel to break through to this Roman official has now himself been struck blind and gets to experience darkness firsthand. Oh, you want to keep this guy in the darkness? We'll try this on for size. How do you like that? And so this guy, you know, who goes from leading others astray now has to be led by the hand by other people because he can't see. It's just, it's just, it's like, okay, that's magnificent, God. Okay, so now we see that despite Illumis's attempt, verse 12 tells us something really cool. It says, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So one man finds himself in darkness and the other man finds the light. And I find it very instructive that, that what convinced the Roman officer to believe wasn't just the power of Paul to strike this magician blind, but according to the text, it was the power of the teaching that caused him to believe. It says that he was astonished at the teaching, not just the miracle. And I think that's fascinating because this was a guy that was taking in a lot of information from a lot of different sources. And, and all of a sudden he hears truth and something happens. The lights come on and, and, he, and, he, and he gets it. And I just want to point out the obvious right now in our world. Truth is, you know, not something that you're hearing very often out there. And so we have this opportunity to be this contrast, light in darkness, to go out and speak the words of truth that come from God's word to people that are only hearing the opposite of it. And and every once in a while when that happens, you'll you'll see this kind of conversion. You'll see this thing where all of a sudden it's like the lights come on and somebody will believe it. So continue to speak the truth of God, even when it's unpopular, even when you're going to get, you know, th this was risky for Paul to do. You know, he's going to come and tell this guy something different than he's been hearing. And he's got this magician here and Paul does it anyway. I'm always amazed at how God's word just does this thing that it does. You know, it, it is that two edged sword. Um, it, it can it can convict one person and encourage another person. It can do, you know, it, it's amazing and it, it doesn't return void. It goes out and accomplishes what God intends it to accomplish. And we can, have, we can have faith in that and believe it. So that's kind of the text this morning, and I want to pull out three principles from it 
And, and these are the principles. They're long, so I talk fast if you're trying to write down. Sorry. But the first one is the importance of being sent out by the Holy Spirit. The second one is you'll nev- you, you never will know who will respond to the message of the gospel. And the third one is that we are in a battle for souls. So the first one I think um, is, is important. It says it's the importance of being sent out by the Spirit. You know, in, in Christian circles, we often talk about calling. And it, we treat it almost like it's some kind of a mystical, undefinable thing. You know, you'll hear somebody say, you know, I, I feel like I might be called to ministry or I feel called to preach. And it, to be sure, it can be a feeling. It can be just this internal thing that you, you feel. But it needs to be more than that. It should be confirmed outside of you by those who know you and are probably a little more objective than you. So, for instance, there are people who feel called to go on American Idol and sing, right? They feel it, okay? But anyone who hears them would be able to confirm that is not your calling, right? So we can convince ourselves of things that that may or may not be real. When it's confirmed outside of us, though, that starts to change things. And just like we see in our passage today, the Holy Spirit will confirm those He has chosen for the task at hand. We're told that they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. So God is the one who chooses or calls specific people to specific things. But he does so through this collective, you know, um, voice or multiple people in the church, especially the leaders in the church. Self-appointment is dangerous and it's unbiblical. If you're the only one who sees it, it's, it's just warning, you know, warning, warning, warning. This is one of the dangers um, in the way many churches hire pastors today. And I don't mean to be critical of other churches, but but they find people who have been trained but not necessarily called. And there's there's no real way to, to know about that. There's no way to guarantee the calling because on paper, I was talking to my brother-in-law who's the pastor in Prairie City. He's advising a church right now, and he's trying to encourage them. There's two guys in the church that we can raise up to be your next pastors. They're proven. They're called. You know them. They've lived in your midst. You've watched them. And they're saying, well, but we could also, we could also go out and try to, you know, bring somebody in that we don't know. And, and I understand why churches do that, but it, it can be really risky because, as my brother-in-law pointed out, they're going to send you their best sermon. They're going to have their five best friends, right? You know, the endorsement. They're going to come and, I mean, it's, it's always going to look great. But, but six months down the road, as you've been living with this person or a year down the road, you're going to start to find out the truth. And sometimes I don't, we roll the dice this way. So the, the best way we have to verify that a person has been called by God is to raise up people from within the church. People that we know well, that can be observed and confirmed over time by everyone. And that's one of the jobs we have, is to seek God and to ask Him to reveal the right people for the right tasks within the church. I, sometimes I think we just say, well, you're breathing and, and you're upright, so... <laughs> You know, go work over here. That's not the best way to go about things. We want to look for God-given ability and passion. We want to look for proven character. If we're going to put somebody in charge of a ministry, we want to make sure that, you know, they have a good reputation inside the church and outside in the community. It's very important. And as we worship alongside each other, callings and gifts and roles are going to be revealed by God. Each one of us should typically be trying to work ourselves out of a job. Right, we we should be trying to train up our replacement. 
continually. So regardless of what ministry you're involved in right now, that needs to be part of what you're thinking about. Who am I going to hand the baton to? Who's the next person that's going to come and run, you know, when I wear out or when I can't do it any longer or, or whatever it happens to be? We need to be ready to do that and thinking along, you know, those lines. Um, none of us are irreplaceable. We need to be finding our replacements. So one of the things we're getting ready to do uh, by way of this is on third Thursdays where we've been doing our men's meetings, we're going to change the format up and we're going to actually start having the guys in the group preach a sermon. So 20 minutes, a hard 20 with a hook, you know, we're going to, we're going to send somebody to tackle them at, at 20 minutes and five seconds because <laughs> we don't want it to go, you know, so, but we're going to get guys to, we're going to try to raise up new teachers and leaders. And this is a way to start to figure that out. Is there God-given gifting? You know, first off, there needs to be passion. So we're finding guys that we know have, have, you know, desire to teach. We've got a list of about six or seven guys right now that we're going to just roll through. Uh, we're going to evaluate them quietly while they're not, not that night. Um, you know, not a group effort where we, nobody would want to do that if we did it that way, but, but be able to meet with them later and say, here's where, you know, you really exposited the text quite well. And here's where you made Christ big and, you know, and here's where you need to work on, you know, so we're going to try to raise up new people and we're really excited about this. So we want to do the same thing in community groups where we have different people facilitating the group. So if you're a leader in a home group, finding that person that's going to replace you or that's going to get sent out next to do the same thing. We need to do that in the mission field. Right now we've got some of the missionaries we support. You know, Rebecca's parents are, they're in their, I don't know what hell they are, but they're getting up there. I don't want to, I don't want to age shame anybody, so I won't say how old they are, but they're getting up there. And maybe the replacement could come partly from here. So we always need to be thinking along those lines. Okay. The next one is that you never know who will respond to the message of the gospel. If you would have told Paul and Barnabas that they were going to convert a rich, influential, intelligent, powerful, high-ranking Roman politician that day, I wonder if they would have believed it. It's like, I don't know. That doesn't sound like a guy, you know, that doesn't sound like our target audience, right? This guy probably had at least three major things trying to keep him from coming to Christ. Uh, one was a false prophet named Illumis, and Paul handled that. Pretty pretty well. But the other two, as uh, Tony Merida points out, would be pride and materialism. The proud and the materialistic don't want to hear the message that tells them to bow before Jesus as Lord. We've all known people who are self-sufficient and, and don't like to admit they need help. They rely on their, their intelligence and their, their influence and their resources or like YouTube videos. That's what I do because they, they, you can find out anything on those. But the last thing they want to do is admit they need help. Because it means they're, they're vulnerable. That's what pride is. It, it tells us that we can do it ourselves, right? We're good enough, we're smart enough, and doggone it, people like us, right? That kind of idea that the problem is God opposes the proud. He hates pride because it completely leaves him out of the equation. But the good news is that he gives grace to the humble, to those who, who are willing to bow before him and admit that they need help from God. And that's what this Roman official was willing to do. The gospel really is a humbling message that tells us we're not good enough. We're not smart enough. And God is not pleased with us at all. And materialism is, is closely related to pride because it tells us that we can find fulfillment in something other than him. And so it's, it's like chasing your tail. You're never going to get there. You're never going to find it. You can try and try and try, but it's always going to be like, you know, drinking dirt. It's never going to satisfy your thirst. It's never going to quench anything. The gospel really is a call to die to self 
and to find abundant life and fulfillment in Christ alone. It really doesn't make sense in some ways, but it's the truth of how it works. So the gospel confronts man's pride and idolatry head on. And and the fact that this man, who had every earthly reason to ignore his need for a Savior, the fact that he took a knee and believed that day, just proves that, that God can crack even the toughest nut. Right? Some of you were tough nuts. I don't mean that. But you were. You were, you probably, I know that there's people, like I, I know from high school that would say, who? Brent? No way God cracked that nut. You know, and I just want to encourage you guys, don't write anyone off. Don't give up your prayers for people. Some of you guys have probably, like me, been praying for people for a long time that God would break through. And sometimes you give up and you lose hope. Don't. Keep praying for those people you love. Keep asking God to come in and, 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 and break through to those people. Well, the last thing that, that I want to mention is that we are in a battle for souls. Um, did you notice just the fearless intensity that Paul displayed towards someone trying to interfere with him sharing the gospel? I mean, Paul wants to share the gospel. This guy gets in his way, and he just like, you know, kind of goes a little berserk on the guy. And I like it, right? And then I think to myself, well, the Roman official, I mean, who's he? He's a total stranger. And why, why does Paul care? Why risk your life? Why stick your neck out for a guy that... You, you don't know, and you, you probably won't ever see again. Why get so worked up, Paul? And it's because Paul believed that a man's soul was at stake, right? So he was willing to risk humiliation and rejection and even hostility to tell him about the eternal hope that could be his through Jesus Christ. It's because Paul really believes in hell. And I know that's something nobody likes to talk about anymore today. But Paul believed in it. And most of us here would probably say we do too. But do we really? And we can say we believe in it, but functionally, do we, do we, do we believe that? Because if we did, the way we try to save souls and the way we try to, to share the gospel with people would change immensely. It would look a lot more like Paul and the intensity he has in trying to, to plead with this person to come to Christ. I love this Spurgeon quote. I've read it in church before, and I'll probably read it again, but he says this, and I just picture, you know, Spurgeon, and he's a big guy, you know. He probably wasn't like a linebacker, but I kind of picture this. Like he's, he doesn't want anybody to be able to get by him without hearing words of life. He says, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned or unprayed for. I like that intensity that he has. And I hope that, that you know, as we continue to spread out and as we, we lose some people and we sacrifice to go down into Lapine and other areas that we go to, that we understand that this is what's at stake. There are people in our community here, there are people in the communities down there that need to hear about a Savior named Jesus Christ who went to the cross on their behalf, who suffered in their place, and that by believing in what He did, His death, burial, and resurrection, they can have life and they can escape this. And we need to be out in the streets pleading with everyone that will hear. That should be our attitude towards lost souls that surround us every day. The greatest love that that we can show someone is to tell them about Jesus and to pray faithfully for them to believe. And just like Paul, who was filled with the Holy Spirit, we can speak with this boldness and authority, trusting that God will give us the ability when the time comes to speak to the people that that he brings along our path. And at the same time, we can take comfort in knowing that our job is simply to tell others about who Jesus is and about what he's done.
Okay? We can't control the outcome of it any more than, than we can control the wind. That's what the Holy Spirit does. We present the message. The Holy Spirit does what He does in that person's heart as only He can do. The truth is when we share with people, when we tell them about Christ, they might believe like we saw this man do today. They might walk away from us. But they walk away with the words of life having been spoken to them, knowing that there's a God who loves them and who sent His Son to die for their sins. They walk away with that message. And you never know what God will do with that message over time. I shared before I was young when some guy approached me on the street one night when I was in a car with my buddies wreaking havoc in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, cruising the Strip, right? And uh, he came and knocked on our door and, and told me I wasn't okay. He, he gave me a track and he told me that basically you're on the wrong side of this deal with God. And I was mad at him and I treated him poorly that night and I found him later. And I said, I remember that night. I remember you telling me that. I remember it unsettling me. I remember thinking, uh-oh. And it, and, it, and it just resonated and resonated until that day when I finally bowed before the Lord and received him as my Lord and Savior. And, and I went back and found that guy and was able to tell him, thank you. Thank you. So you never know what God's going to do. I'm going to um, ask you guys um, a big favor, and that is to pray for me. As I uh, Next weekend, um, I am going to be at the coast. My family is, is getting together uh, to, uh, I guess, celebrate is what it's called. But um, we're going to spread my aunt's ashes and my grandma's ashes at the coast. Uh, my aunt passed away this last year and my grandma a while back, but they never really had any kind of a memorial service for them. And so we've got about 30 of my family members coming together, and they've asked me to say something. <laughs> And it's like, you know how family is, right? I grew up with these people. They know me. And and there's a part of me that wants to be really careful because a lot of my family aren't Christians. And so I'm thinking, okay, I want to I wanna be on eggshells here. I want to be really careful about how I do this. And then I prepare for passes like this. And it's like, is that really what you want to do, Brent? And so I've got an opportunity to go and, and preach the gospel to my family at a time where they're contemplating how how short life is. And so um, please pray for me and, and pray for my family and the time that I get to spend with them. It's going to be uh, interesting, and yet I have to just trust that God's going to use that in a mighty way. So if you think of me this week and, and next weekend, especially Sunday morning, while you guys are here worshiping, I'm going to be um, out there with my family um, doing that. Yeah, Chad. I would love that, man. Thanks, brother. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and we pray for you that you would give Pastor Brent boldness. Thank you. We Lord, pray I that know, you... Lord, I know how much it means to everybody here, and how much it means to your family. Lord, just make us uh, mm. make the message believed by those who believe, and those who don't believe, and those who don't believe, just as we see a time so that we, uh, we all have faith in all. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brothers. Appreciate it. Well, I'm going to say a quick prayer, and then we're going to sing a sing a couple of songs. Father, thank you so much for um, the way that you call, confirm, and commission. Uh, we see that so clearly in, in this passage, Lord, and, and I hope that the heart's desire of everybody here in this room today is to be used more of you. And so, Lord, help us to know um, how you've called us, how you've gifted us, what role you want us to play in your church, 
and, and Lord, to be active in, in encouraging each other and praying each other as we wait to find out what that might specific, that specific task might be. I thank you, Lord, for the way you've grown this church. It's something only you could do, not something we could plan for or do. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to, um, to move out into new territory. And Lord, we know it's going to be costly um, in different ways. And yet what a privilege it is to be used by the living God to go out and tell others um, that we have a savior and that, that we have um, a way to escape uh, the wrath that was coming our way. And so thank you, Father, so much for sending your son for sinners. Thank you that he went to the cross and suffered and died when we should have been the ones doing that. Thank you that by believing in his death, burial, and resurrection and his work on our behalf, we can have life and relationship with you. And so, Lord, uh, we have this message, and, and we are jars of clay. We're nothing special, Lord, and yet we have this message that we can take out into the world. So use us, we pray, Lord, and magnify your name in this community, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.